in my late teens, in my 20s, first the struggle was, you know, literally finding out, standing on a dock of a marina where a brand new yacht was in the water and my father was informing me that, oops, I don't have the money to send you to college. Welcome to Unleashing Your Great Work, a podcast about doing the work that matters the most to you. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Kroll, a cognitive psychologist, coach, author of the book, Great Work, and the creator of the Great Work Journals. Every week on this podcast, we're here asking the big questions. What is your great work? How do you find it? And why does it matter whether we do it? What does it actually take to do more of your great work without sacrificing everything else? And how does the world change when more people are doing more of the work that matters the most to them? Stay tuned for answers to these questions and so much more. Welcome everybody to Unleashing Your Great Work. If you still think of wealth as a purely a numbers game, then you haven't met Michelle Arpin-Bagina. She's an advisor, an author, and a speaker. Michelle has taken her own money story and alchemized it into a passion for financial literacy that marries the science of wealth management with the art of financial therapy. Michelle grew up airplane, sports car, and yacht poor, surrounded by outward signs of wealth, but plagued by the insecurity of knowing it was a sham and that her family was never more than a bounce check away from disaster. I am so very excited to have Michelle Arpin-Bagina on the podcast today. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks, Amanda. I am thrilled to be here. You know, I am a huge fan of yours. (laughs) <laughs> and I am a fan of yours. So Michelle, we are going to start where we always start, which is the question. Tell us just a little bit about your great work. I intuited my great work for a long time before I was ever able to articulate it. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to clarify what it is, but what it is, is that I want to teach people how to talk about money. We're literally told we're we're literally not taught how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think talking about money is easy once we know how, because anything, anytime we know how to do something, it always becomes easier. Mm-hmm. Like, funny story. Recently, I caught up with a friend and said to her over the last year, actually, as I was preparing for a talk I was doing, I felt like I received this big download and went like, oh, okay. Like that's what this is all about. Mm. I'm supposed to teach people how to talk about money. And her response was, I knew that about you from the first moment that I met you. (laughs) (laughs) So you were surprised by what everyone else already knew. (laughs) I finally caught up. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it about specifically talking about money that feels so important? Well, I think, you know, money, it infiltrates and is a part of everything in our life. Mm. So it's not just how much we make or how much we're saving. It's how we're in relationship with our money ourselves, how we're in relationship with other people, with their money background, their own money relationship. Um, It affects how we perceive ourselves. It affects how we think others perceive us or they don't. So it's really, you know, it's a part of everything that we do on so many different levels that, and we, and we don't give it, um, we don't give it the mental attention a lot of times, and we certainly don't give it any sort of 
verbal attention. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to feel like, you know, in control of your money and uh, calm about your money in your own mind. But what you're saying really is that we have to open our mouths and talk to other people about it. So can you give us an example, like maybe a story of like how, how it goes currently with people feeling weird about talking about money and how, what, what opens up for them when they learn how to talk about money or an example you can share? Yes. And one, I, I hope we all probably can relate to, which is about negotiating for more money, Mm. whether that's a salary job or, you know, clients that we might be working with or what have you. Mm -hmm. So I coached a woman recently who shared with me that she was having a hard time going to her boss to ask for a raise. And we talked a little bit about her background. We didn't have to go very far to find this. Hmm. She shared with me that she was raised by a single mom who Hmm. was able to make ends meet, but it was really, really tough. And she described her mom as being exceptionally hardworking Hmm. And their community was one where there were resources that would help families if they reached out for that help. Mm-hmm. Her mother never did. Mm. Her mother perceived that as taking a handout. Mm-hmm. And what was actually stopping this woman I was talking from, from going and having a conversation about being paid fairly and being paid for her value was she was perceiving that conversation as if she was going and asking for a handout. Mm-hmm. I see. And that's the way it is sort of in the default mode, the way, you know, in the, we don't talk about money, it's crass to talk about money or it's rude or it's overstepping. That's where she ends up where she's like, won't talk about it. And she ends up not getting what she needs or even what's sort of her rightful due. So what exactly. would happen for her if she knew how to talk about money? So what had happened for her is that she had made meaning out of asking for money and asking for a handout of being the same thing, Mm -hmm. because speaking with her, she realized, you know, what she added to the team, what her value was. She knew what fair compensation would be, you know, but that was all of the rational thinking. Mm -hmm. What actually broke her through was realizing that she had um, joined two concepts at the hip that didn't belong together mm-hmm. as an adult. And once she realized that she was able to step in and have those conversations. Wow. That's huge. And you know, what this reminds me of is I've recently seen your Ted talk. Michelle Arpin Bajina mm-hmm. has a very cool Ted talk that mm-hmm. I will hundred percent link to in the show notes. And you, in there, you talk about, uh, I think you talk about sort of the three stages of talking about money. And I feel like if I'm remembering correctly, the, the second stage is talking to somebody who is more of an expert than you are, like getting actual help from people. And it sounds like talking to you was that experience of having somebody who could see it differently, who could point things out to you. And then she was able to go out into the world and talk to the person who she actually needed to talk to about it. Yes. Yes. It wasn't without preparation. She still had to you know, face some other fears. Like uh, a common one is what is this other person going to think of me? Mm-hmm. Right? Am I being greedy? Am I being fill in the blank? So she had to deal with all of, you know, her own fears of what the other person might think or how they might respond to her first. Mm-hmm. And then she had to get really clear on what she wanted and how, like what language she was going to actually use to have the conversation, how she'd set it up, how she'd ask for the meeting. And then when she did have that meeting, mm-hmm. what exactly she would say. So she still had some work to do, but I do think the breakthrough moment for her was 
exactly as you said, someone else with a different set of eyes and a different point of view, just being able to see something that she was blind to, which we all have those spots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I find myself wanting to ask, like, why is it so hard to talk about money? And on the other hand, in my own self, I'm thinking, well, it's self-evident. Like it's so baked into our programming and the way that we're raised. And so certainly that's one reason why is it's like, we're all kind of uh, hamstrung. We're kind of straitjacketed about it because you just don't do it. Right. But it sounds like, so, but why, I mean, why is this so difficult? Not just to talk about, but to break the habit of not talking. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly why. I have a few theories. Hmm. I I think one of them um, has to do with being seen. Hmm. So I've never quite understood the fear of success kind of thing people talk about. I understand fear of failure a little bit more. Hmm. But what I don't hear a lot of people talk about is actually the fear of being seen. And I think that's especially prevalent with money, whether it's Uh, a fear of being judged for how you think about money, um, the role that money plays in your life, how much you want to make, whether you declare, I want to be rich. I mean, if you say that out loud, you're guaranteed to get the wrath of humanity Mm -hmm. down on you. Um, So I think it's all of that. So yes, baked in is definitely the right way to to put it. Mm. But, I, but I think where it really comes down to is we were told certain things, we, we absorbed those things without ever questioning. And we may or may not be living our life according to what those beliefs were. Mm. And if we're not, we can feel out of integrity, maybe with our family, that we're doing mm. it differently. Or we might be perceived by others a certain way. And uh, and it doesn't mean you're, you're, you have a, you know, a financial house of cards situation. It could just mean that the reality of your situation is different than what people are perceiving. Hmm. And you just don't want to own up to that. You don't want to speak truth to that. Hmm. So that's interesting. So you're, it sounds like what you're saying is when anytime, so I'm like, what you were describing is like, you could be what did you say? The wrath of humanity is brought down on you. <laughs> so it's like, I feel like the wrath of humanity could be brought down on you. If you, if you like admit to having less money, you know, cause then it's like, well, you're not a hard enough worker and, and don't blame me. And this, you know, I don't know what people say, but you can also have the, I mean, when you were talking about the wrath of humanity being brought down on you because you are financially stable or wealthy or, Um, And it's, it's interesting that it seems like it's not really about actually the situation as it is, as much as it is, whether your situation matches who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. What is it about, like, why would we feel so offended to be talking to somebody who sees money or has money or perceives money in a way that's different from us? Because it does feel very visceral. Mm -hmm. Why? Like, what is going on here? Yeah. Well, I think first is um, everyone has an opinion about what you should do with your money. Mm -hmm. So if you make a lot of money, then you might start hearing advice about, well, 
Um, if you have a lot of money, then it's your duty or your responsibility to tithe, to give it mm-hmm. away, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have enough, you brought up a good example, then you're probably not working hard enough. Mm. Um, so somewhere people are just going to point a finger and say you're wrong about something. Mm-hmm. And I want you to do money the way that they think they would do money if they had a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a whole nother, you know, we always think that we know what we would do in certain circumstances until we're actually in those circumstances. And then we really find out what we would, you know. Yeah. So true. And we have, I think we have a bit of a love hate relationship with money, mm-hmm. you know, especially in this country, which is so ironic, right? Cap- most capitalist country in the world. Mm-hmm. And yet we have such a difficult time with talking about this thing called money that we all are responsible for in this country for making our way, right? We don't have the safety nets that other countries do and we have to create it for ourselves. Yeah. Which is a little bit, you know, a little ironic that we have such a hard time talking about this. Right. We, we made it part, like being able to talk about money, being able to negotiate, being able to like navigate this vast expanse that I mean, unless you were raised by like a banker and a financial manager that you probably don't really understand exactly how it works. And yet we're all, we're all locked in an inability to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if you open your mouth and at any point, someone could have an opinion, like you were talking about, you know, everyone's going to have an opinion about it. And so you just don't want to be seen. So this feels like quite a large problem that you, <laughs> you have uh, dedicated your life to. So what do you do? What can someone do to actually start learning how to talk about money? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to clarify is probably that when I say talking about money, I don't mean the shouting from the rooftop. I'm going to go you know, talk to every person I encounter about money. Right. I'm very specific about being able to have conversations with the people that matter the most mm-hmm. and the people that you're co-creating your financial future with. Those are the people, right? So that could be your, your family, your friends, your boss, uh, the person who's going to give you the money for your, your new business venture, mm-hmm. your banker, you know, whoever. Mm-hmm. And the stages of doing this really I think stem not just from the first stage, which is knowing how you're talking to yourself, Mm -hmm. which, you know, and I say this in my TED talk, most of us are talking to ourselves like jerks. We have to stop (laughs) doing that. (laughs) Right. What's an example of talking to yourself like a jerk about money? I'm so bad with money. Mm. Instead say, Michelle, you're a badass with money. Mm. (laughs) Right. Because it's much more effective for us to talk in the third person as if we were talking to another person, because that actually gives us the equivalent of perspective that we would get in real life if we were having an open conversation with another person. Right. So it's learning to switch that. But it's it's really getting clear, though, on what you are thinking, not just how you're talking to yourself, um, but what you're actually thinking, because I think most people this is an area of their life that they don't deeply examine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's more that, okay, I'm going to get educated or I'm going to get the skills to go on and start a company or go to work or whatever we do. And it's all about earning an income. And we all kind of default to, 
the rest will just take care of itself. Like I'll earn enough and I'll be able to pay back my student loans and save up enough for down payment on a house and, 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 Mm -hmm. and that's all great. And that works for a lot of people, but that's a little bit more of focusing on the actions and the doing Mm -hmm. around money versus the being. And I think it's just as important to focus on that. So that's just as easy as taking a bit of a, a trip down memory lane and thinking about who were the most influential people in your life as you grew up around money? What did they mm-hmm. teach you? What did they teach you that um, you want to take on for yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, what did you see that they did that worked? What didn't work? And really kind of examining what were the flashpoints? What were the big moments? What did I make that mean when I was a kid? What mm-hmm. did I hear? That's a big mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite stories to tell is of somebody that I worked with. He was uh, an investment banker, his first job out of college. And after five years of working 20-hour days, making really big money, he had $1,000 to his name. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's not a lot. Nope. He was really frustrated about that. Mm -hmm. And he started thinking back to his childhood. And as now an adult, he reheard his father's voice, Mm -hmm. which used to always say, Money isn't important. Mm-hmm. And the bells went off for him. Mm-hmm. No wonder I don't have any money because I've internalized my father's belief that money isn't important. So mm-hmm. if money isn't important, I'm going to go spend it all. He has since changed that to money isn't everything, but it is important. And yeah. when, he, when he made that shift, mm-hmm. which was an intentional shift mm-hmm. of his, he then, he ultimately actually got out of investment banking, pursued a little bit more of a creative career and is literally has tens of millions of dollars now. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's very so, interesting because like uh, one of the theorists I love the most, <laughs> just talk about a theorist right now, um, is Vygotsky. And one of the, he talks about like, how do we, how there's a, there's like a whole debate in the world of psychology about whether language comes before thought or thought becomes before language, right? Mm-hmm. Vygotsky says that language comes before thought, that we actually hear other people talking And as we're surrounded by greater and greater complexity of language, we are able to, that facilitates greater and greater complexity of thought, which is in itself very interesting. But one of the interesting things that comes to mind and what you're talking about is that we, if what we're doing, which is what Vygotsky says, is that we're internalizing what we hear, then we're not examining it. We're not critically like questioning it. So we absorb that and we, we're internalizing what we're hearing from the outside world. And if what we're hearing is don't talk about money, money isn't important, then it is no wonder that we arrive at adulthood as a culture, not able to really communicate with each other. Um, And in marriages, you know, I mean, I guess the number one reason marriages break up is because of money problems. And like, that makes sense because if you can't, if what you've heard is like, do not talk about money, money will work itself out. And it, it, it doesn't actually, usually, especially you have different kinds of spending habits and stuff. That's fascinating. So is this, why is this so interesting to you? Like, what is it about Mm. this that has gotten your, uh, has become your great work? Is it personally relevant to you in some way? Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, you've got to check out the Great Work community. 
The Great Work Community is where change-making entrepreneurs make drama-free progress together. Come on over for a co-working, accountability, coaching, and just-in-time courses. Check out The Great Work Community. The link is in the show notes. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you already know me, Amanda. You knew the answer to that question. I did. Well, and I saw your amazing TED Talk, so I actually <laughs> know a little bit. I know a little. But tell, yeah, you know tell our listeners. <laughs> So I, I will, and then I want to go back to, to the, the idea that you just had about language before thought. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I know a little something about this because um, my parents were entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, uh, as they were starting out, they struggled to make ends meet in the, in the you know, prototypical ty- type of way that they just didn't have any money. And as they struggled to get their business off the ground, what little came in was really for the necessities, right? Mm -hmm. Food, shelter, clothing. And as their business became more successful and they earned more money, Mm -hmm. their struggles got larger. Mm -hmm. So it was no longer about just making the rent and making sure the kids had shoes and food. Uh, It became about other things. And for me growing up, my parents enmeshed me in the middle of their money relationship, mm. the one they independently had and the one that they had with one another. So their fights were epic. And I usually was involved usually mm. as a sounding board to relieve somebody's stress inappropriately, like mm. TMI way before, way ahead of my time, right? Mm-hmm. To hear any of that kind of stuff as a kid. But what it made me keenly aware of was just how emotionally connected we are with our money. Mm-hmm. So kind of going back to what you said about, you know, language before thought, mm-hmm. I felt everything before mm-hmm. I understood it. Yeah. And could even articulate it or even think about it. I just felt what that felt like. So I'm wondering if, you know, feeling comes before mm-hmm. language and thought to begin with. But what ended up happening with my parents is that they, um, they eventually evolved into this place where they would save to spend their money. Hmm. And part of that category did not include actually saving for the sake of spending, like the rainy day fund or let's get prepared for the future type of planning and saving and investing. And I, because my parents were becoming more and more successful they would uh, receive very large account payable sums. They did a lot of, they were in the moving and storage business. They did a lot of work with the government who would just sandbag their payments and Mm. they might pay them six months or a year's worth of work at a shot. Mm. And we'd end up with a new sports car Mm -hmm. or a private airplane Mm. or eventually a yacht that was meant the cash was met for my college tuition. Mm-hmm. The only way my parents afforded to do that was because they would come into these lump sums and they always had their eye on a big ticket purchase, uh-huh. which sounds like really um, fun and glamorous. And there were a few moments where it was fun and glamorous. However, it's really not fun when your parents can't afford groceries or health insurance. Right or they've sent you to a private school at their insistence, and then they're struggling to make that tuition or on and on. So even though we had all the trappings of wealth, uh, they really hadn't evolved very far from those early days of my mom 
with the shoebox and the envelopes doling out, you know, money for the different things that we had to pay for when they first started their business. That actually never really changed despite what it looked like from the outside. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that was your starting place. And since then, you have done a ton of work. It's, I mean, I've seen your TED Talk. I know you. Um, to arrive at a different place. So what was that like? Like how, what did it take to go from having sort of ingested or absorbed all of that language and expectations around money and the feeling, you know, cause that's another, when you talk about feeling like money makes you feel sick to your stomach mm-hmm. is it like a, is a real association, right? If every time people were talking about money, they were yelling, then why would you want to talk about money? So how did you personally overcome all of that? Yeah. Um, Interestingly, even though they fought about money, it actually didn't make me not want to talk about it Hmm. because I just saw it as (laughs) if we actually talked about it, we could stop arguing about it and we could maybe come up with some solutions was really my thinking. I was very driven. um, I think by a couple of reasons. One I always looked at my parents, despite all their financial shenanigans, as at their highest and best, right? Mm. They were great sense of humor. They worked really hard. They were really honest people. And they just were a hot mess when it came to their money. In fact, I would even consider them to be successful people, just not in this one arena. But I remember kind of sort of having that out of body experience of sitting back and watching these two people that I loved and thinking to myself really young, if you could two could just get out of your own way, you have all the ingredients for Mm -hmm. this to go from ho-hum or worse than that to hot damn. (laughs) From ho-hum to hot damn. damn. Maybe that will be your pull quote. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, um, I I was powerless to help them, right? I wasn't a coach. I was a kid and I would have desperately, uh, I I desperately wanted to have been able to do something that would have helped them pull out of that and have a better relationship with money, a better family life as a result of it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what got me interested. And there also was a little personal vow that I made to myself that I never said out loud to them. Um, which was, this is not going to be me mm. because the amount of stress and financial insecurity that all of that created was something that I wanted to get away from as soon as possible. Yeah. So how did I do that? I actually struggled big time in my late teens, in my twenties. First, the struggle was, you know, literally finding out standing on the dock, standing on a dock of a marina. Mm where a brand new yacht uh, was in the water and my father was informing me that, oops, I don't have the money to send you to college. So absorbing that trauma and that betrayal. um, So you're, you're on the standing on the dock of a marina and your dad, what pulls in with a new boat? Is this your first time seeing the boat? Like, how did this happen? What do you mean that like, what is like, Oh yeah, I know. I told you I would pay for college, but I got this boat instead. Like how did this, what happened? <laughs> this is crazy. This is a crazy story. <laughs> it is a crazy story. Um, I always say there's a lot of people that had to put themselves through night school yeah. to get their education. 
Yeah. I've yet to meet the person that had to do it for the reason that I had to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That said, it was uh, it, the spring of my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. My parents out of the blue just decided to buy a yacht and mm-hmm. they were coming into a large lump sum of money right. again from work. And it literally was like my, my father just came home one day and was like, let's get a yacht. And my mom was like, okay. <laughs> and we had a yacht within, I don't know, a week. Like wow. that's really how it happened. And that's how it always happened with these big ticket items. Uh-huh. So my father would get this idea. And then before we knew it, we were flying around our private airplane. Mm. So that's kind of how it went down was that on a whim, he got this idea. They bought the yacht and I drove to their Marina on a Saturday morning. It was, it was a few weeks after I had graduated from college. High the school, school I, I'm sorry, graduated from high school. The school I was going to go to was still as yet undecided at that point. Uh-huh. So I went to the Marina to go meet my parents and go see this new yacht mm-hmm. without knowing that as I stood there and started talking to my father about college and the money for college, that he was going to look me in the eyes and shrug his shoulders and say, I don't have the money to send you. Oh, wow. So they failed to inform me that the money they were spending on the yacht was the money that would have been used for my college fund. And they failed to inform me talking about speaking about money after being promised that they would support me financially with this yeah. when they decided to buy their yacht, I guess is when they changed their minds about giving me the money to go. And they never let me know that. Wow. Wow. Right. So it's not like you were like, obviously the only thing that's ever acceptable is for parents to pay for their kids to go to college, but instead they had said they would, and then they changed their mind. Correct. Because they wanted a yacht. Yeah. Wow. That's hard. Yeah. yeah, it was. And I, you know, the only expectation I ever had about or, or where the expectation came that they would pay for college came from them. Right. Because they told me they said they would. Right. right. The only thing they ever said about money was that they would pay for your college. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So I, that's a terrible story. I'm sorry. That so when, so there you were as like this little kid just wishing that you could help these people. Cause you, I think what you described as seeing them, I always saw them as their greatest and best versions of themselves. I feel like you just described how you see kind of all people like as a person who knows you, I feel seen like that by you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Love. Um, and so I feel like you have, you have become the person you had hoped to be. Because you do help people now. Tell us a little bit about what you do now, because you really are kind of doing exactly what you had hoped to do. Yeah, thank you. I, I don't know that I could have defined it back then. I just knew, um, again, I just intuited that my my interests were in money, right? All of my first jobs were mm-hmm. around, had something to do with money. Um, as a matter of fact, the the very first job that I got after walking off the dock uh, at that marina, because when that happened, my brain, my brain didn't, my, my heart didn't really register what happened. I closed that down, but my brain went berserk with mm-hmm. college costs a lot of money. I don't have any money. How am I going to get money? All right. I got to get a job. And I got into action like that. Mm. 
And within a couple of months, I was working at a bank and without the branch manager knowing anything about my background, as part of my onboarding as a brand new employee, she asked me if I wanted to take a banking course at the local community college and the bank would reimburse me if I passed the course. Mm -hmm. I would have to front the money and then get reimbursed. Mm -hmm. And she described tuition reimbursement. And that was the way forward for me. Mm -hmm. So I went from, you know, banking into thinking I wanted to be an accountant into financial services once I learned what a certified financial planner does, Mm -hmm. which the simplistic way I looked at it back then, which is still the way I look at it today, is it's really marrying love of people with love of numbers. Mm -hmm. And I have always loved both of those things. So when I figured out that that was a career, I decided I didn't want to be a CPA. I wanted to be a CFP. And it evolved into creating my own practice. So everything that I'm talking about, we're talking about here today, I've been doing this in practice with my wealth management clients for 25 years. Mm-hmm. It's only been the last couple of years, I'd say five years or so, that I actually told my story the boat story, quote unquote, for the first time Mm -hmm. uh, to where I've really fine-tuned what is my great work and am now really putting that type of work out uh, for a larger audience. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And along the way, in addition to being a successful wealth management advisor, uh, you also, I'm trying to remember the exact details of this, you were able to get financial literacy added to New Jersey's K-12 learning standards. Tell us about that because that you always sort of gloss over that. And I think like, whoa, wait a second. I know how hard that is to do. And you did it. So like, tell us just a little bit about that too, because that's a big part of it, I feel like. So I I call something like that, what we're going to talk about, a a be the change. Yeah. want to see kind of a moment. Um, So I was, this is going back about four years ago. I was reading a book because I'm always has my, have my nose in a book. And when I read, my brain goes on tangents. Mm. So I'll read something and I'll end off on a tree limb from the trunk of the book. And the tree limb that I ended up on that particular morning, something made me go and look at the New Jersey financial literacy standards. So we're both New Jersey residents. Yeah. I had, I, it was not the first time I had read them, mm-hmm. except it was the first time that I realized that behavioral economics and financial psychology were not already being taught to kindergartners through 12th graders in the state of New Jersey. So New Jersey had always had already required Finlet for college, uh, sorry, for high school graduation. Okay. But they were not, um, they were not also teaching kind of the, the inside baseball of money, the psychology of it and the biological and behavioral biases that we have that are not just relevant to financial decisions, but are relevant to decisions in any part of our life. Mm-hmm. So I sat there and um, thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder how I would change the standards. And then my finger started, you know, hitting the keyboard on, well, who's in charge at the State Board of Education? Mm-hmm. And I ultimately found that person. And by the time that I was able to talk with him, I already had a proposal prepared, a couple sample lesson plans, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Michelle comes prepared. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then luck intervened. 
so it just so happens in New Jersey, we review our learning standards for every subject every five years. Mm -hmm. So I happened to catch it right when they were forming those committees. I got invited to be on the committee and went back and forth to our state capitol countless numbers of times over about the course of a year. Mm -hmm. And as probably most school systems, once the learning standards are, um, have been vetted, they go through a public review process and then ultimately get ratified by the state board of education. Mm-hmm. That all transpired from sitting in that coffee shop with that initial idea to the New Jersey board of ed ratifying it. It probably took about 18 months mm-hmm. and New Jersey became the first state to include financial psychology as part of their standards. Wow. Early last year. That had to feel really good. Early last year. It's September of 2021. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's great. So it that's did. Very recent, it did. actually. It felt great. Um, in fact, I, when I drove home from Trenton, New Jersey, the capital, the, the day where we in committee had completed this work, which it wasn't just me working on this. It was, it was a whole team of committee members that were mm-hmm. working on this together. But that day that I drove home from Trenton, I, I couldn't take the smile off my face and it was, and it wasn't even approved yet. It was that sense of having this idea out of thin air and then just deciding to act on it and marveling at how far I had taken it and how awesome the experience was to be around other teachers who like me volunteered their time to do it. Nobody gets paid to do this kind of stuff. It's because we just care to make a difference that we think will have an impact on somebody else. So it was a really awesome feeling. Wow. That's amazing. Thanks. It's a good segue to a question I always like to ask, which is, you know, doing this kind of work is challenging. You know, you've described it sort of started in a hard place and you had to really think about your own personal experiences. You know, there's challenges. It can be difficult, but it also sounds like it brings you a lot of joy. So I want to just hear like, what is the joy in this work Mm. for you? It's a great question. I, I think the joy for me is is really in two places. I, I think it's the state of flow that I get in when I'm creating. And I think it's um, it's a little hard to describe, but the, the great work that I feel, it has a hold of me as much as I have a hold of it. Mm-hmm. So it's so much a part of myself that I just feel like I'm so authentic when I'm in it Mm. and that I don't want to give that feeling up. Like that's really, that's what it does for me. And then when I think about, you know, if, if I just think back to who I was at, you know, 10 and 15 and 17 and 25, the things that I know that I've learned, um, you know, either professionally, personally, academically, that I wish I would have known then are things that I can share for somebody else not having to say that later in their life. That just makes me happy. Hmm. I like it. So we've heard where you've come from. Tell us where you're headed. You have, tell us about your Ted talk because that I think came out fairly recently in the last couple of months, I would guess. Yes. All right. Yes. Um, And that was a big accomplishment. So what's, what's next for you? I'm working on a book. Woo-hoo. Yeah, that's, that's what's <laughs> next. 
That's um, a big job. It's a big job. It's actually been, um, out of all the things I've done, it's definitely one of the most challenging. I, I would say right up there with building my wealth management practice, right? No one really? handed me my, yeah. I mean, no one handed me my clients. I had to go yeah. get them. Uh-huh. Challenging. Um, yeah. It's, it, um, I think it's challenging in that, you know, I first had to overcome all of the stuff of who do I think I am mm. to talk on this topic. I'm not a good writer. Mm. Um, why, why would I even put myself through trying to become a good writer to where I don't talk to myself that way anymore. Um, so overcoming those kinds of thoughts and then it really gets into, you know, it's not so much the quantity of what I rate. It's more that even when I find the perfect word or, a cool phrase, or I've actually written a sentence where I'm like, that's exactly what was in my heart and mind. And I got it on paper. Um, that process is really gratifying. And then also just learning more about how I learn because I feel like writing and learning to write has just been a different art form than I've participated in, in the past. So things like community has been a really wonderful part of um, what I've been up to, right? Whether it's writing a speech that I'm going to deliver or writing this book now, being in community with other people who are trying to do similar things. And it's not always because I'm reading my stuff to them. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's just knowing that I'm not the only one in the trenches trying to do something really hard. And that's a pretty big area for me because I've pretty much been a solo practitioner my whole life. And I mean, even when I go back to, you know, standing on the dock of that marina, when I walked off that dock, I never told a soul about it. I never asked for help. I was 100% going to figure that out myself. And then I went into a field that no one hands you anything. Mm -hmm. So you might go through a training program, but then there's the phone and the telephone book and go find your clients. I didn't have a natural market. I don't come from... I come from a fake wealthy family, so (laughs) that didn't really help me. Right. So everything that I really had done until this place in my life um, was as a solo. And now um, I've, I've really learned how to, how to be in partnership, how to be in community. And it's become safe for me to be seen is Mm. really really has been the big, big breakthrough. Wow. What a gift. Yeah. Peace and joy. Mm -hmm. That's true. Peace and joy. Yeah. And you get to do cool things with awesome people. Mm -hmm. In addition to being in community with them, you get to participate when they do awesome things too, which is really wonderful. Yeah. I marvel at, you know, the last five years, the different types of people that I've met and how many more people I know in different areas, different ways than I ever did, um, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's great. So you have a book coming out. So the next time you're on this podcast, it'll probably be once your book is out and you can tell us all about it, (laughs) which would be amazing. I like that thought, Amanda. I like it too. Well, why don't you wrap us up by telling us how people can get to learn more about you? How can they get a taste of what you do or get a chance to talk to you? How can they do that? 
So the, the two best places to reach me or to connect with me on LinkedIn mm-hmm. or to come find me on my website, which is Michelle with two L's, AB, michelleab.com. Mm-hmm. And, and actually I have a guide there that people can download right off the, the homepage. Yeah. What's the guide about? The guide is uh, something I call the success formula guide. Mm-hmm. So I'm a very big believer. And again, this comes from having witnessed, witnessed my parents that how you do one thing is not how you do everything. Mm-hmm. And we can look to any part of our life that we've been successful. Mm-hmm. We can dissect it a little bit and then map it on to our decision-making around money. Because we okay. really do know how to do money. Yeah. We just have we to just borrow have to from the other it. places that we know how. Exactly. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So they can get the, the success formula guide on your website and then great. Awesome. And they can go and listen to your Ted talk and they can go listen to my Ted talk, which I highly recommend. I actually really, really liked it. I actually saw it in real life. The truth is I saw her give it in real life. And then when it came out, I instantly watched it and thumbs up it and commented (laughs) because it's that good. So I will link to it in the show notes as along with her website and her profile on LinkedIn. So get to know Michelle. She is a kind giving person. Uh, Follow along with her her story as she revolutionizes how Americans talk about money. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Michelle. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Thanks for listening today to Unleashing Your Great Work. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And make sure you check out my book, Great Work, Do What Matters Most Without Sacrificing Everything Else. It's available everywhere you get books. See you next time on Unleashing Your Great Work.